Minnesota comes from the Dakota name for this region, Minnesota Makoche, the land where the waters reflect the skies. The Dakota and numerous other indigenous peoples whose cultural, spiritual, and economic practices are intrinsically woven to this landscape, hold this land sacred. We recognize them as the original stewards of this land and all the relatives within it who had thriving and vibrant communities prior to disruption by settlers. Today, the state of Minnesota shares geography with 11 tribal nations. By offering this land acknowledgement, we affirm tribal sovereignty and hold the University of Minnesota accountable to recognize and counter the historical and contemporary injustices that continue to impact indigenous people through mutually beneficial partnerships, research, policies, and practices that respect indigeneity. I'd like to welcome all of you who've come this evening. My name is Ann Waltner. I'm the chair of the history department at the University of Minnesota. Um, I, uh, first of all, before I introduce our, our speaker and um, his interlocutor, I would like to, um, to thank our co-sponsors. We don't always have co-sponsors, but tonight we have a rich raft of co-sponsors. Uh, first of all, we, we planned this actually in conjunction um, with the Eastside Freedom Library. Um, and at the end of this evening, Peter Ratchliff will have a few moments to talk to you about the library and, um, and what they do. Um, the Labor and Working Class History Association is also a co-sponsor. Will Jones, who is um, in conversation with Joe Trotter tonight, is the current president of that association. And Joe is a past president of the association. Uh, the Ramsey County Historical Society is also a co-sponsor, as is the African and African-American Studies Department here at the University of Minnesota. So um, we're very proud and pleased to have all of these co-sponsors. And we're very pleased um, that one of the things that all of this co-sponsorship does is it brings together different um, different circles of, of colleagues, different communities uh, together in this one event. So what we do in this book club is we feature people who are affiliated with the University of Minnesota Department of History, um, whether it's faculty, former faculty, students, um, and there may be other affiliations as well. Joe Trotter actually received his PhD from the University of Minnesota, so we, we claim him um, very proudly as a, as a former student. Um, he, um, he is uh, a professor of history at Carnegie Mellon. And in addition to the book we're talking about tonight, um, he's the author and editor and co-author of many books. Um, one of his books, um, Black Milwaukee, has been through a number of um, a number of revised editions and is an extremely important book. Um, Will Jones, who is our colleague in the history department, will um, engage Joe in conversation about um, about the book Workers on Arrival. And Will is the author of two important books, um, March on Washington. Jobs, Freedom, and the Forgotten History of Civil Rights. 
Um, and then the earlier book is called The Tribe of Black Ulysses, African-American Lumber Workers in the Jim Crow South. Um, and so um, before I turn the floor over to Will and Joe, the format will be they will engage in conversation for 30, 35 minutes, at which point we'll open up the floor to questions. I'd like to ask you to please put your questions in the chat and I will read the questions um, to Joe, or you may have questions for Will, in fact, and we'll, we'll continue with that until just about seven, and then I'll turn the floor over to Peter for just a few minutes. Um, before, before I turn the floor over, I just want um, to tell both uh, Joe and Will how, um, how excited we are to, to have both of them here talking. Um, and so with, uh, with no further ado, um, I don't know who wants to begin. Do, do you want to, do you, do you want to have the first word, Will, or do you want to give it to Joe? So let's let Joe begin. Okay. Then, yeah. Well, well, thank you. I'm, I'm happy to be here. Uh, and I want to thank Anne, Will, and Clayton uh, for helping to arrange uh, this event. Uh, this is especially exciting for me. Uh, as Ann pointed out, I'm a graduate of this program at the University of Minnesota and very happy to be involved in this event. I also want to thank the uh, co-sponsors of this, uh, Peter and others, uh, for coming together and making this a uh, more widespread event than I'm normally accustomed to. So thank you very much. Look, this is a book talk. I mean, a book conversation, uh, not a book talk. Uh, so I want to just say a few words about uh, the book and uh, my journey to the book, um, very brief. Um, the first thing I would like to say is that this, this, this book really is a culmination of my own research and writing over several decades. Uh, and so in, in many ways, it is a sort of a synthesis of uh, not only my work, but the work of other scholars in the field. Um, but let me just say a, a, a couple of words here. Um, in 1985, um, the University of, Ill of Illinois published my first book called Black Milwaukee, which uh, I think Ann mentioned. Uh, in that same year when Black Milwaukee came out, I left my first job at the University of California at Davis, and I moved to Pittsburgh and I have remained in Pittsburgh uh, since. Um, now, when I moved to Pittsburgh, you know, things for the city, you know, for the city itself, they were pretty dismal, especially for African-American workers uh, because the steel industry was collapsing all around. Uh, and that huge homestead work that so many, almost all of us know about the homestead strike of 1892, that homestead work was still there. Uh, it disappeared in a few years after I got there, uh, but it was still there. And so I got this feeling uh, that I was moving in sort of back into the industrial heartland, into the heart of the industrial era. Uh, but that era was gradually and in many ways rapidly uh, beginning uh, uh, to disappear. Now, on a personal level, um, uh, despite all of the unemployment and the crises of deindustrialization and everything, on a personal level, it was an exciting moment uh, for me uh, because I came to uh, Pittsburgh in a way with a game plan. You know, I said, okay, 
uh, with Milwaukee in hand. Uh, what am I going to do next? And then I, I, I said to myself, you know what? You should do a series of studies, you know, case studies, uh, regional-based case studies. So you have Milwaukee in hand. Uh, study industrial life of Black people in another place. And I chose Southern West Virginia to do a study of Black coal miners in West Virginia. And in my game plan, West Virginia was going to stand in for Black experience in the Upper South, right? So I've got the Northern place standing in a way for, for Milwaukee standing in, in a way for the Urban North. Then I go to the Upper South industrial um, experience of Blacks in West Virginia. So I'm getting a feel for these regional differences in Black life. And then I was, the, the third leg of the trip was going to be uh, go South and uh, study Black people in urban Alabama. And so that was my third project. After Cold Class and Color was published in 1990, and I said, oh man, I can, now I, I'm on the road. I'm going to now go, go South. And so I conceptualized this, I, this study of doing three cities in the Deep South, Alabama, Montgomery, Birmingham, and Mobile. And that was going to be the end of the, of the sort of trilogy for me. I was going to step back after I got that urban deep south study under my belt published and, and talked about maybe. <laughs> and then I was going to do a synthesis of the black working industrial era. Now notice that even then as a young man, uh, I wasn't going to go further west and say, oh, but if you're going to do the whole thing, you might as well go west and do a study of black proletarianization in a west coast city. And then you can really do a synthesis grounded in all of these places. So I stopped short of the West. Now, to share a secret, and many of you know it, it's not a secret, it's an open secret. I never finished the Urban Deep South book. I'm still working on the Urban Deep South. But around 2005, I said, you know, time is passing. Uh, I better start writing some kind of synthesis. The literature was uh, mushrooming and all kinds of things. And, and by the um, early 21st century, a new generation of scholars like Will Jones has started to produce these massive, well, let's just say a, a proliferation of case studies uh, that took the story of African-Americans forward into the late 20th century, and then back from the, from the interwar years all the way to the uh, colonial period. And so I'm reading and teaching about the Black workers' experience across several centuries of time. And so this book, Workers on Arrival, is really a product of me trying to think about how to merge that pre-industrial moment in a study with Blacks in my area of specialty, the industrial moment. And so that's, that's sort of the, the story of how this uh, study uh, evolved. One other piece before we go, I want you to know that the version of the book that you have at your disposal now was not exactly the version that I started off to write. In that first version, I started to write this around 2005. That first version, 
I kept wanting to tell two stories in that book. I wanted to tell the story of African-American urban life from the colonial era to recent times. And I was also trying to tell the story of African-American working class and its development over several centuries of time. And every time I sent that book to a, a reader, you know, the, the readers, the critics, it came back with a relentless set of suggestions saying, you know, you're trying to do too much. <laughs> and as a result, you're not doing either of these pieces uh, justice. And so eventually, um, and also you guys know about uh, becoming department chair like Anne there. I know she knows about how that can impact our research agenda. And in 2005, I signed up for a second 10-year period to chair uh, our department. Uh, but that wasn't the thing that hung the, the, the study up for so long. It was this need to unravel, you know, the story of Black workers and to treat it in its own right in some way from the story of the way African-Americans migrated to these urban places, took work in various occupations, especially the industrial era by the 20th century, and crafted their own communities. Uh, so that's, that's the story behind the story. And I will say that my uh, study in this Workers on Arrival responds uh, to the new scholarship that was being produced by Will and others on each side of the industrial divide and this is the study uh, that you have today. There are other issues that I respond to, but I'll give Will a chance to ask me questions about the book and we'll get into some of those other things that motivated the book. So that's my spiel as an introduction. Let us begin. Well, thanks, Joe. Um, thanks for, for joining us. And I, I just wanna say how much of an honor it is for me to join this conversation um, Joe, from the very beginning of my career, has been uh, uh, one of the most important mentors and role models. Uh, and, you know, as I sort of reflect on that, the one thing that really stands out, I mean, for me, is the way in which Joe has always been a consistent supporter of my work and, um, you know, so allowed me to do a lot of what I've been able to do. And I really appreciate that. Um, yeah. In uh, when I when I was actually in, in um, one of my first when I first started teaching, I was teaching at the University of Wisconsin in Milwaukee, and and the Association for the Study of African American Life and History happened to be meeting there, and I asked Joe, you know, I was a young assistant professor, uh, to come and be on a panel to talk about. Black Milwaukee uh, in, in retrospect. And uh, he, he actually, I think, organized a lot of the panel. So <laughs> Earl Lewis uh, joined the panel. And um, one of the things that really struck me about that panel was that uh, Joe and Earl both talked about being at the University of Minnesota as graduate students together and, um, and how important that experience had been for their scholarship moving forward. And, and I thought, you know, Joe, 
I, I'd like you to talk a little bit about that. I mean, what sort of your time at the U, uh, and 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 I think one thing that really I actually so some of those comments were re were printed in a reissue of Black Milwaukee recently. And one thing you point out in that in that period is the way in which being in a program that looked at Black history in a international context um, at a time when the uh, Black politics was looking internationally really had a profound impact on your work. And I think it's interesting as a scholar of the United States to think of um, how that international perspective, I think, really shows in this book and in all of your work. So I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about that. Okay, thank you. I, I'm happy you've given me an opportunity to do that. Uh, look, you know, I I actually came into graduate studies from a six-year high school teaching career uh, in now what is very well known, Kenosha, Wisconsin, um, and. In Kenosha for that six years that I was there as a high school teacher, I had become involved in the uh, community uh, activism of that community uh, in an organization called the Kenosha Black Caucus. Uh, and during those six years, uh, I read The Black Scholar, which was a major uh, publication for um, young black you know, activists who wanted to learn and, and connect uh, both their activism to an intellectual component that really thought deeply about the experiences of African people historically. And, and what uh, influenced me heavily before I reached Minnesota is that in 1974, there was a six Pan-African Congress that met in Tanzania called Six Pack. And at that uh, Congress, African-Americans who were active in the United States and in the Black Power Movement came to blows in a way with African heads of states over this issue about the primacy of race over class. And it was a riveting set of debates in Black scholar and uh, me and my colleagues in the, in the Kenosha movement, uh, we listened intently. And in a way, we started to see um, more clearly that while we, we considered ourselves Black nationalists, so, so that, that thought, I'll put that out on the table. We considered ourselves Black nationalists, but this moment in 1974 when Julius Neri and others, African, um, you know, statesmen and formal freedom uh, fighters and so on, when they voice that in the context of an all black country, class means almost everything. And so, so we started to think that maybe the movement had to reassess where it stood on issues of class as well as race. And so by the time I hit the campus, uh, in Minneapolis, you know, St. Paul, uh, these ideals were sort of just germinating in my, my head. And I entered my first set of graduate uh, courses uh, in a way with a lot of questions uh, that I was interested in answering. But when I uh, applied to graduate studies at 
the University of Minnesota. I also had applied at Wisconsin and at Illinois. Uh, but I was especially drawn to Minnesota because Alan Spear was here and he was on the faculty. And as part of my teaching requirement, I had written a paper on black urban history. Actually it was US urban history with a focus on the African-American experience. And I discovered Alan, Alan Spear in writing that paper, uh, but I had no idea that he was at the University of Minnesota until one of my um, um, colleagues at, um, well, let's just say um, a person from my undergraduate college told me because I need a letter of recommendation. He said, well, did you know Alan Spear is at the University of Minnesota? And I said, no, he said, it would be great if you could work with him. And so when I got here, uh, Alan was the first person in a way that I tried to seek out and find out what he was up to and if he would be interested in and the things that I wanted to explore, which was black urban history. And Alan told me, he said, Joe, I will help you with reading lists and conversation and a lot of other things. And maybe in some team talk courses, he said, but I'm not taking students in the African-American field. And I never quite pushed him on why, but I've got a feeling that the black power phase of African-American life at Minnesota had in a way challenged uh, white scholars who were doing black history and in a way sort of maybe undercut his enthusiasm uh, for going forward. Um, so as a result, getting to Will's question, long I don't wanna be long-winded so we don't get other things into conversation, but uh, going into the seminars, uh, I, think that the courses on the in the African People's Program framed a lot of my interest in transnational uh, scholarship. Uh, because in that, there was a course in which Lawson A. Carver, Alan Isaacman, uh, Stuart Swartz, the Latin Americanist, and even Alan came in to give lectures that brought Africa Latin America, the Caribbean, and the U.S. together in one place. And that generation of young um, graduate students in my cohort, we were just astounded by the connections of race and class across these boundaries. And so we were hooked, you know, in thinking about ways to incorporate a more transnational global perspective into the work uh, that we were doing. And so I, but, but I especially credit uh, the training I got in urban history, from John Modell and from Clark Chambers. Those were my two dissertation co-chairs um, and the Africanists were helping me put urban and labor history together. And especially on the proletarianization side it was research on South African workers and workers in uh, parts of the East Africa and West Africa with a working class focus that got my attention and said, uh, so I wrote a paper comparing sort of South African industrial workers with coal miners in West Virginia, particularly Alabama. And so that sort of situated me to begin thinking uh, in these terms. 
And so that, that's sort of my trajectory for how Minnesota uh, reinforced my interest in class and race, uh, but also gave me some tools uh, that I could um, employ in some of that scholarship. Thanks. Anne didn't mention that I'm the director of graduate studies, so I had to sort of work, oh. that, work the graduate program in. Oh, uh, good. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, so I just, I think sort of moving, you know, I think this is a, a theme that is really central to the book and um, that in Workers on Arrival, you begin by noting that the ways in which issues of class and issues of work have in some ways become more prominent in American political discourse. I think, you know, sort of coming out of the 2016 election, there's a lot of talk about working class voters, about the, the, about the working class. I think actually uh, it struck me that in 2016, Donald Trump was the first uh, presidential candidate in decades who actually used the term working class as opposed to middle class, right? But as yeah. you point out, the way in which it's framed is in a very narrow way, sort of looking, you know, standing in for the working class as, you know, white industrial workers, often in the sort of small town Midwest, uh, displaced yeah. industrial uh, from from deindustrialization. I think you make yeah. a really important point that if we're going to think about the working class in the United States, the place to start is actually to think about black workers, right? I mean, that, that, that yeah. black workers have always been at the center of the story of work and class uh, yeah. in the United States. And I wonder if you could talk about why you think that's important and how you, you yeah. try to do that in the, in the book. Yeah, uh, thank you. Um, this is a centerpiece of, of the book. Look, you know, when you write a book over a long period of time, you know, the moments that you were writing in keep shifting, right? So that at one moment, it was Obama and how Obama, you know, and I was trying to finish the book and then trying to make sense of what it meant in the context of, you know, these various moments along the way when the book didn't quite make it. But then this Trump moment, uh, 2016, uh, it came at a time that I was still working to try to revamp the book into a book mainly about black workers. And so it struck me uh, that as I was writing and uncovering this history of blacks uh, as contributors, you know, to the development of the wealth of the nation, that here we are now in the uh, early phases of the 21st century and people are still uh, dismissing uh, much of the black working class experience and not just dismissing it or, or ignoring it, but distorting it because there was a distortion embedded in the way these white workers were discussed. And that distortion had to do with distorting the work ethic, let's say, of the black worker. So that black workers were kind of shunted to the side, even if they were recognized, they would recognize in a negative way. They don't have a, a great work ethic, but they want all these social welfare programs that, you know, provide, you know, the safety nets and so on. And so I felt that, you know, one of the things that this study needed to do was to speak to the idea that Black workers have been part of the U.S. working class from day one. 
And I wanted to also make the point that they were not only part of the rural enslaved proletariat, you know, working in rice, sugar, uh, tobacco, and later cotton, that from the beginning, they were part of this urban proletariat. Uh, and that black working class was there at the making of these American cities across uh, in a sort of transnational cities, you know, the Dutch, the English, the French, the Spanish, all of these uh, colonies that were carved out, built cities employing black workers in some capacity. That didn't mean the majority of them necessarily were black, but they were uh, a hugely important part of every urban construction. And over time, Black workers continue to be part of the development and maintenance of these cities. And so that was one part of the story, is to bring the story in the early period out of this, you know, it's important that we recognize the, the rural uh, contribution because that is pivotal. I mean, it's, it's the most important thing is the way you know, racialized capitalist development emerged out of these plantations, you know, where Black people were fueling the wealth of the nation, and they were fueling the, the wealth of the Western world. I mean, industrialization in England relied on this uh, Black workforce, cotton textiles as a sort of a front runner in industrial development. And of course, the Northern United States claiming you know, you know, over time uh, to be a freer place also benefited over, over time uh, from this enslaved labor. So I wanted to bring that, those uh, stories together, uh, but mainly because those other stories were being told in all kinds of ways, I wanted to underscore this, this urban uh, context. Yeah, yeah. And, it, and I, I mean, you mentioned sort of building, drawing, synthesizing, existing work and it's i mean a remarkable synthesis in the way in which you um you tell this really sweeping story uh, but then you really dig down into the detail and the lives of people at work and their lives and um in you know in in cities across the united states it's really remarkable it seems that a lot of what you do i mean it really anticipated and it and i think and some of the points that were made by the 1619 project, which was published in the same year, um, I, I believe later, um, okay. but, uh, but emphasize the, the centrality of African, of enslaved Africans to the economic and the political formation of what would become the United States. Yeah. Um, and I think you do that really beautifully in the sort of the really fine grained detail of description. Um, I just, I'll read one section. African people helped to build and service the colonial city, not only as general laborers and household and domestic workers, but as skilled craftsmen and craftswomen. Um, yeah. And the way in which you, you know, I think another thing that you do that I think is really profound and, and useful is the way in which you call out yeah. the authors that you're drawing on and the other scholars that you're drawing on. Um, okay. It seems that you that one of the so I guess one of the 
a question that I that comes out of that in terms of touching on some of the controversy that was raised by the 1619 project. Um, I wonder if you could talk more about just the impact of uh, enslaved African people on the country economically, but also politically in terms of the political institutions of the United States. Yeah, I think that's an important question. Um, it, the 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 political part um, for this I, I call it, by the way I call this period you know before the Civil War the pre-industrial age but I really try to pay attention to uh, the colonial pre-revolutionary period what was that moment like for Black workers in America. And I think one of the major points I try to make is that in the politics of the colonial era, especially the politics of the late colonial era, um, there was a good deal of interaction between enslaved blacks and to some extent, small numbers of free blacks and white workers, you know, who some indentured servants and later just free wage earning white work. And so that Christmas addicts is a symbolic figure that captures this ideal that the generator of the American Revolution came from below, uh, from these multiracial radicalized working classes and that black people were part of that, an integral part of that. So the revolution itself involved Black people on the ground and in the struggle uh, to wrest this country from the British colonial uh, empire. And so I think, you know, that and, and, and Black people, although the revolution failed them in terms of emancipation and freedom and equality and rights and all of that, it situated them ideologically and they continue to be a part of the economy. So their work was an important component of America's development going forward. And so they leverage their position in the economy to really push the ideals of the revolution and to really place America on notice that it had to move forward and finish that revolution. And until it addresses the issue of slavery and the enslavement of African people, then it is only a partial revolution. And I think what we begin to see is that black people gradually put pressure on the state uh, and on the states uh, to liberate and create a more democratic multiracial society. And so you see the rise in the years after the American Revolution uh, of a free black population that eventually amounts to about 500,000 free people color by the time this civil war comes. But, but this is one way in which black people put a wedge, you know, into that system and really highlighted the contradiction uh, between a nation professing to be, you know, a place of democratic freedom and at the same time suppressed an important part of the population. And I think the whole struggle for the democratization of America had a great center within the black working class uh, over the course of the early 19th century. 
And so the abolitionist movement, Black people would be at the forefront of forging uh, an abolitionist movement. And they were also at the forefront of saying to the American Colonization Society, no, uh, we're not leaving. Uh, we're going to fight it out here. And we're going to struggle against uh, the effort to repatriate free people of color, of course, and leave enslaved people um, in bondage. And so there, uh, I don't know if that's getting at all that you, 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 you know, you want to get at, but I think that's part of what shaped, you know, the early nation. It put the nation on, on uh, notice uh, that there was some work to be done and that black people were going to be part of any progressive movement uh, designed to rectify uh, that injustice. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, I think that that's the theme that comes out really starkly in the okay. book, the, the sort of relationship or the dialectic between oppression and exploitation on one hand and the agency yeah. of, of working people and the way in which black workers really yeah. in, in very profound ways shaped the country yeah. uh, moving forward. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, could I say one thing? Yeah, please. I, I don't want to mislead. Um, the African-American African quest for freedom, independence, and so on, it, when I said they said, we're not leaving, they did. Most of them did say, we're not leaving, we're going to stay. But what I want to point out is that there's another theme about Black nationalism that remained very much alive over the entire course of the period uh, from the end of the American Revolution through uh, the uh, advent of the Civil War. So that as this incomplete revolution that Black people were trying to make complete, uh, as they worked on that project, uh, there were other Black people who were saying, but we can't, you know, um, sort of ignore uh, this African heritage that we have, that we carry, and that we need to really think more broadly and remain conscious of ourselves as an African people. And we need to try to forge independence, freedom, and so on within the United States, if possible, but elsewhere if necessary. And so there were movements. They, Black people, I tried to underscore, they detested the American Colonization Society because they saw it as an imposition on them uh, from the, you know, from the, you know, slave masters, you know, people who had the power, people who were oppressing them. But on their own, they said, if we decide, and they said it in their own words, we don't want, you know, white people or Europeans or masters going overseas and finding a place for us. If we're going to find a place overseas, we want to be the leaders of that movement to resettle elsewhere. And we have to have our own people go abroad, look at places, check those places out, determine if there's a feasible resettlement plan. And that's what I think is the nationalist version of these movements, you know, to Canada, Haiti, or Africa. So I just wanted to get that in there because I, you know, no doubt you overstated. I, mean, I overstated how 
you know, the idea of staying and fighting to become part uh, was mitigated to some extent by um, this other th thread. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Thanks. Um, mm -hmm. Well, this is a we'll, this this will continue. We'll we'll continue this conversation. But I want to bring in some people from the audience and some questions from the audience that I think Anne has been collecting. So. Okay. Um. Yes. Um. Emily has a question. Um. Thinking about Will's connection between workers on arrival and what's missing from discussions today, working class identity. Joe. Could you speak a bit about domestic labor and its place in stories told by or about black workers? Uh, domestic workers are a major thread integrally woven into the story of the black working class. Uh, one of the uh, things, this will underscore it, in most of the cities that I talk about in the book, from the colonial era through uh, the late antebellum period, uh, especially by the early 19th century, black women were the predominant population. They outnumbered men, and in some cases quite significantly. And so the ideal of a pre-industrial working class uh, has to incorporate, which I tried to do, this notion that that working class was pretty occupationally diverse uh, and it included men and women and to some extent children because once these black, well, let's say once enslaved people, their numbers increased, once free blacks started to increase, employers didn't waste much time uh, putting these children to work especially in household service, you know, young boys, young girls. Um, and so the household um, sector uh, is very important. And that's one reason why women became such a predominant part of the population is because these uh, slave owners, artisans, as well as commercial people, um, they were looking uh, for a way uh, to help their wives. This is the period where economic historians talk about uh, white women, especially elite women, feeling that, you know, they, they don't want to do this work anymore. Uh, and that is not fitting for the wife of a Republican and a free independent man to have to do this drudgery. And so they were beginning to think of ways to offload all of this work on to another class of workers. And African-Americans and poor whites were those workers that took up the slack and started to do all of the drudgery. Now, some scholars or some contemporary people even may have believed that these elites wanted black servants so that they could serve their bodies. You know, like they gonna cut their hair and they'll make their bath water and they'll you know, help dress them and all of that, sort of this grooming kind of. But no, in all of these households, we know that these women were doing the hard labor. They were put to work scrubbing floors, polishing furniture, um, and you know, tending to children, doing the whole work. So yes, household service, a centerpiece. Uh, and these women 
uh, were very much. Um, and I, I don't want to usurp all the time, but but household service also introduced early on uh, this exploitation of women, both sexually and economically. And that's another thread that runs through this uh, uh, this story. But they were essential parts of enriching the um, the economy, enriching uh, the people who own them. Okay. Um, that uh, a question: um, How has the Black working class reconstituted itself in different historical eras, and how might understanding this process help us to understand what is going on today between the descendants of enslaved Africans and recent immigrants from the African continent? Okay, very good question. One that I was hoping I would be able to talk about. Um, Will already mentioned uh, that I talk about both so-called general labor or what is sometimes called common labor, um, that Black people worked in the, and also what's sometimes called unskilled labor. They worked in these basic tasks. They lifted a lot, they dug ditches, they, you know, cleaned, they transported things. But there was from the beginning a segment of that early black working class that was skilled or skilled workers. And uh, some historians have suggested that by the time you get uh, to the late 18th century through about the early 19th century, there's a moment in there where skilled black artisans became more prominent in the development of these cities. And there was a kind of a golden age of the black artisan, enslaved black artisans for the most part, but then to some extent free blacks. But free blacks as artisans competing with slaves had a hard time. Some of them had to just slip out of the artisan class once they became free and couldn't compete with the. But during that time, employer, and let's just say slave owners, artisans, commercial people, especially artisans. And they trained these African people in carpentry, blacksmithing, and a variety, cabinet maker, a variety of skilled craft, um, brick masonry, uh, in order to enhance their value and to really increase their margin or profit. Now, about the 18, by 1820, this so-called golden age of the black artisan nearly disappeared by the, by the onset of the Civil War. And one factor in that uh, process of, and this is a case in which the black working class was reconfigured downward mm -hmm. um, as these artisans were pushed out. And a factor in that were these millions of immigrants coming over from Ireland, especially in Germany. Over 3 million, I think close to 4 million between the end of the revolution and the onset of the Civil War. And W.B. Du Bois wrote in detail about this process in Philadelphia. And he talks about how the black artisan was pushed more and more to the wall by the 1820s and 1830s. And so that by 
1860, that black artisan class was only a fraction of its former self. Um, at that point, you see in the rhetoric of black people who commented on their own condition, they worried that they were becoming, quote, a race of servants. Mm -hmm. Now, um, Martin Delaney, a migrant from Virginia to Pittsburgh, he declared that it's no disgrace for people to work and make a living as servants, but a whole race of servants, he said, was a degradation to that people. And so that by the beginning of the Civil War, during the 1850s, all kinds of crises, uh, African-Americans were beginning to despair. Uh, and, 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 and the thing about it is that that crisis not only affected Blacks at the artisan level, it reached down into certain other kinds of jobs that Black people had achieved. One of those jobs was the barber trade. Right after the Civil War, white men said, I'm free. Barbering is a servile occupation. I'm not going to do it unless I have to, maybe something like that. But Black, they opened up uh, an opening for the Black barber, for the Black population. Free Blacks entered the barber trade in rising numbers. Uh, after the American Revolution and after white workers associated with the revolution started to uh, distance themselves from that trade. Now, that was one of the jobs that the immigrants from Germany and Ireland were not opposed to taking. And so they started to take some of these most lucrative jobs at the lower end of the occupational structure so that black workers were really squeezed at both the upper end artisan and the lower end uh, were they involved in, in barbering and in some transport trade, some transport uh, situation. So, so I just wanted to get that out for the person who asked how was the uh, black community re reconfigured. Um, and that's part of the story. I can't hear you. I can't hear you. You can't hear me because I'm muted. You'd think, oh, okay. you'd think by now I would have that figured okay. out. Okay. Okay. Um, <laughs> um the the final question, um, someone says that they would like to hear Professor Trotter talk about scholarly trends regarding the role of black elites and class tensions within the African-American community. In an earlier period, lots of scholars were critical of folks like Booker T. Washington. Yet in recent years, a number of scholars have written about him and those like him in a more favorable light. I see this as a part of a broader tendency to marginalize labor history and class more generally. I would love to hear your thoughts. Okay. Um, it, you know, I know that, you know, when historians write, you know, there's some back and forth. And that debate between Washington and Du Bois, uh, as a labor historian, I've always felt that we invested it maybe in, in too much uh, in that debate mm -hmm. between those elites. Uh, on the ground, 
Black people were forging opinions about how to deal with their own lives. In some cases, the debates reflected some of the ideals that are percolating, you know, up uh, from the bottom. And so I'm, I, I know the person is saying that today there's been a resurgence, and I don't have the examples in hand about the resurgence, but I would say this is that we need to keep a focus, you know, we need to keep our um, focus clear, you know, when we're dealing, you know, with these debates, you know, between uh, these elites. And I believe that uh, even on the ground uh, back in the day, um, there was ambiguity, for example, in the way that some working people uh, responded to, you know, Washington versus uh, uh, Du Bois. And so it was never, you know, a foregone conclusion that Du Bois would triumph and become the predominant, you know, figure. And so I would like to just, you know, add that there's a little bit of, a, I think, a margin in there that we have to, we have to consider. I'm not sure I'm answering the question, um, but get back to the, the, the question right, uh, writer. Okay, okay, <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I think that unfortunately we're pretty much out of time. And so what, what I'd like to do now um, is briefly turn the floor over to Peter Ratchlow so he can tell us a bit about the Eastside Freedom Library and the kinds of things that they do. Peter, I, I can't see you, but I'm sure you're here. I am. Great. Go ahead. Yeah. Um, thank you, Ann. Joe and Will, thank you so much. Um, there's such a great collection of people here this evening. Um, it's, it's really inspiring just to be present. Um, and listening to Will and Joe gives us an idea of what a rich and complex topic uh, this is. And um, so I think the best way I can promote the Eastside Freedom Library is just mention what's coming up in the next two weeks and encourage you all, Clayton is gonna post the uh, web address so that you can find more information. Um, tomorrow night, we're having a conversation with David Rodiger uh, around his new book, The Sinking Middle Class. David, of course, was once part of the history department at the University of Minnesota. Um, and we have a panel that includes August Nymphs, um, who teaches at the U still. Um, and then on Friday night, uh, we will be screening the film Finally Got the News. Uh, and we'll be opening with a context setting conversation uh, with David Coleman, uh, who wrote a book called Race Against Liberalism um, about the presence of black auto workers in Detroit and their impact on both the political environment um, as well as the conditions in the auto plants. Next Tuesday night, Jordan Camp, who is even younger than Will, uh, is, is yet the, the next generation uh, of African-American labor historians. Uh, Jordan has written a book called Incarcerating the Crisis, and it includes a chapter uh, on the League of Revolutionary Black Workers. And he will be our labor history reading group 
uh, docent uh, for uh, February. We're reading that chapter uh, of Jordan's book. Um, and then on the evening of the 17th, we're having a discussion of the locally made film, Jim Crow of the North, uh, made by Daniel Bergen uh, for TPT Channel 2, the local public television station. Um, and in a program that's co-sponsored with Mississippi Market uh, and is going to try to look at issues of inequity in food along with inequity in housing. And then finally, the night of the 23rd, we're collaborating again with our friends at the Ramsey County Historical Society for a special program with Josie Johnson um, who was once an administrator at the University of Minnesota. And Josie has finally published the memoir that so many of us have been waiting for, uh, titled Hope in the Struggle. And on the night of the 23rd, we're going to curate a conversation between Josie and Tish Jones, who's a local hip hop poet uh, and artist activist. So um, the Eastside Freedom Library is doing a lot of things uh, to help us dig more deeply into the subjects that Joe and Will have, have introduced for us this evening. And, and I do want to especially thank our friends at the Ramsey County Historical Society with whom we've been partnering um, every month in a program called History Revealed. And probably everybody on this program tonight knows that there's a hell of a lot of history that needs to be revealed. Um, and that the more that we can engage that history, um, the more likely we can make a better future. So uh, we're into the idea at the Eastside Freedom Library that the past and the present are in a conversation with each other. And out of that conversation, uh, we can shape a new path uh, to move forward. So Joe's work and, and Will's work has been so central um, to my life and my work and to our work at the library. And, um, and I want to especially thank Clayton and Ann uh, for their work in, in putting this program together tonight. Um, Clayton, <laughs> Clayton has handled the technology um, very effectively. Um, this program is being recorded. And uh, one of the things that I've had to learn uh, to accept at the East, East Side Freedom Library is that more people will watch a program after it's happened uh, than when it's happening live. And so I've stopped shaming people uh, about that and in trying to direct them to the recordings um, so that they can still um, engage some of the knowledge that gets produced. So tell your friends if they miss tonight, um, they can still listen to this conversation it will be archived on our YouTube page. Anne and Clayton, will you guys be archiving it on, on your pages as well? Yeah. Yep, and we'll be sending out an email to everybody. Oh, everybody's gonna get a copy of it. Yeah, yeah. awesome. And, and I, think in the, I think in the email that we send out to everyone, um, there will also be um, some links to the Eastside Freedom Library in case in case people couldn't keep up with everything Peter was saying <laughs> about all yeah. of the about all of the wonderful things that that are going on, um, so we we always do send up a follow up thank you 
thank you email that that has key links. Well, I just I want to I want to thank um, I want to th thank a lot of people. Um, I do want to thank Clayton, whose idea the History Book Club was. He came to me and said, "Hey, is there anybody over there doing anything interesting?" And I said, "Yeah, there are lots of people doing interesting things." I would like to thank um, Joe for agreeing to come and Will for agreeing to engage him in such a wonderful conversation. And I also want to thank Peter for, for saying this is something we need to collaborate on. And so we figured out, um, we figured out how to do it. Um, as I said, um, Clayton will be sending around a follow-up thank you email that will have, that will have key links. Um, and I would like to invite everyone to come to the next iteration of the History Department Book Club, which will be same time, same day of the week, March 24th, when our colleague Kirsten Fisher will be talking about her new book, American Freethinker, which is about um, uh, an American freethinker during the Revolutionary War period um, named Elihu Palmer. So that's that's the next thing that we have going on on March 24th. Um, I'd like to thank all of you for coming. This was a great turnout and um, everyone stay warm and stay safe. And we'll be seeing you sometime, somewhere virtually and maybe eventually even face-to-face. -face. So thank you very much. <laughs>